the reason why it is so, why he was transformed. It's because he beheld the Ancient of Days, who is described the same way in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14, which reads, I beheld the thrones till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from him, from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spoke, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed, and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Amen. And then from Luke chapter 9, the bulletin says, we are starting in verse 28, but I want to start in verse 23. Uh, That will become, Lord willing, apparent to you throughout the sermon. Luke 9, verses 23 through 36. Jesus said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed, when he, the Son of Man, shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. And it came to pass, about an eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance, the look on his face, was altered. And his raiment, his clothing, was white and glistering. Behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease or his departure or his exodus, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. They came to pass as they departed from him. Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles. One for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. 
But he said this, not knowing what he was saying. While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them. They feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. And they kept it close. They kept it secret. And told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. Men, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. The transfiguration of the Lord Jesus. It's one of those passages that can be a bit puzzling. It's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That tells us it's quite important. uh, Every single thing recorded in each gospel is not repeated in the other gospels. But the transfiguration is repeated in the three what is called the synoptic gospels. The placement of the transfiguration is meant, I believe, to help shed some light on the intent of the Spirit, the lesson that we ought to learn about the transfiguration, indeed, by the Spirit. Children, this is a helpful tool. The, the principle that I'm going to use to describe how you can understand what something is for in the Bible, I'm going to give you that tool, and you need to keep it in your toolbox when you're reading the Bible yourself. If you come to this passage, and it's a bit hard to untangle, one of the things you can do is to read what happened before it and what happened after it. Because nothing is placed in Scripture accidentally. And sometimes those things can help you see. Kind of like when you're in the middle of a puzzle and you have to figure out where you're going and where you came from. Considering the transfiguration then, what happens before it is particularly Illuminating. Different authors of Scripture do different things with the same stories. And this is particularly the case with the Gospels. Notice what Luke put before the transfiguration. He put Jesus' call to deny yourself. Jesus' call to take up your cross and follow Him. He also included in that section, For what is man advantaged? If he gains the whole world and loses himself or be cast away. Therefore, I think we could say that it seems that Luke is trying to assure those who would follow the Lord Jesus and lose their lives that they have made the right decision. The transfiguration is a persuasive moment in the gospel life Of the Lord Jesus. To put it another way, Luke sets out to prove that denying yourself and choosing Christ Jesus over all things will be worth it. The fact that it may not always appear to be worth it is certainly something that is looming in the background. The Holy Spirit through Luke wants to persuade you that if you choose to live life for the Lord, you are making the right decision. And again, this is particularly persuasive for those who not only read the passage before, but for those who are well-versed in the Scriptures, like the disciples would have been. And I'll show you why that's the case shortly. But before we get into the reasons or the applications of the Spirit through Luke, let's have a closer look 
at this passage, verses 28 through 36. Luke emphasizes that the Lord Jesus and Peter, John, and James went up into a mountain. But he tells you why as well. They went up into a mountain to pray. The praying of Jesus, Peter, John, and James, is emphasized. Notice in verse 29, though, the praying of Jesus caused the transfiguration. He is transfigured while at prayer. Notice how it says in verse 29, as he prayed, his countenance was changed. His face is altered. His clothes become shining white, gloriously white. As Mark says, whiter than any bar of soap could make it. Where does that image come from? Well, it comes from Daniel 7, as we read. Jesus is going up into the mountain to behold the glorious face of God. It's important, though, that Jesus is praying when he is transfigured. We'll come back to an application for that in a bit. But Jesus prayed and then, or as he is praying, the transfiguration occurs. He takes Peter, John, and James with him, much like, remember, if we were to read Exodus, that Moses did not take the entirety of Israel up the mountain when his face was transfigured, but he only took a few, right? But here you have Moses and Elijah with Peter, John, and James. The text draws your attention to the fact that Jesus talked with Moses and Elijah, but Peter, John, and James did not. They are not there to talk to Peter. They are not there to talk to John, and they are not there to talk to James. They are, by the miracle of the Lord, brought to talk with the Lord Jesus. They're talking with Jesus Christ. What a thing this must have been to witness. Children, if you could imagine yourself in this moment, going up the mountain with the Lord Jesus, and someone who had lived hundreds of years before, also being visibly present there, talking to Him. But not just anybody. Moses and Elijah. What a thing it must have been to witness. Arguably the two greatest men in the Old Testament, aren't they? Certainly the paradigmatic figures for the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah. They are brought for this one moment to speak with the Lord Jesus. This never happens in his earthly ministry after this. It never happens in his earthly ministry before this. But at this moment, Moses and Elijah are present there with Jesus for the transfiguration. And apparently, they are there as witnesses. We're not only told that they were talking with Jesus, we're also told what they were talking about. As I was reading through this in verse 31, I gave you three different words. The King James says, decease. Some translations say departure, but it's actually the same Greek word as exodus. Exodus. How poignant with Moses being there. And how the exodus is meant to mirror the Exodus in the Old Testament is meant to mirror our own redemption. What is this thing that Jesus is going to do at Jerusalem? Well, He's going to lead a great Exodus. He's going to lead His people forth from the bondage of sin. 
and a harsher taskmaster than Pharaoh had ever been, namely Satan himself. That's what they're talking about. Again, imagine this conversation. Jesus is probably answering their questions. Moses maybe is comparing what Jesus has done to the exodus of old. Elijah is being assured that his labor was not in vain. Remember how God had to persuade Elijah, right? There are 7,000 who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. This is more persuasion, as it were. He lived between the first exodus Elijah did and the second one. Moses saw the first one. Elijah didn't see either one of them. Jesus is accomplishing the second exodus, but Elijah's ministry was the chief example, the chief paradigm for the prophets of old. And in the meantime, Peter, John, and James, they're having trouble staying awake. They're having trouble staying awake. But they were awake enough to see the glory of Jesus Christ, the text says. And Peter does what he often does. He pulls a Peter, as I like to say, and makes a suggestion that is totally ignored. Let's build three tabernacles. It's good that we should be here. Notice Jesus doesn't even acknowledge it. It's the way the text records it. It says, while he was talking, there came a cloud. Meaning, while Peter was talking, while Peter was rambling on, a bit unaware and unsure of what's going on, all of a sudden this cloud appears. This cloud overshadows them all, and they hear a voice. Again, the bringing together of Moses and Elijah. Remember, Moses ascends the mountain, the cloud of God covers it, right? The cloud of the presence of God. What did Elijah hear when he was hidden in the cleft of the rock? He heard the voice of God, the still, small voice of God. This cloud overshadows them all, probably causing Peter to finally be quiet. And just as with Moses, who heard the voice of God, just as with Elijah, who heard the voice of God, just as with Jesus earlier in the Gospels in his baptism, he heard the voice of God, so to hear is a declaration of Jesus Christ being the beloved Son of God, but also a command. Listen to him. Listen to him. You who have received this call to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow me, to follow Christ, listen to him. He's persuading them, even in the transfiguration. Not only is the Spirit working through Luke to persuade those after the fact, us, but in the moment that the Lord of heaven speaks of his Son and tells those that were there with Jesus to listen. He is trying to persuade them as well. He is trustworthy. And you need to know that He is my Son, God says from heaven, and He means you no harm. And shortly thereafter, once the voice of God has ceased, notice, it's as if not only Moses and Elijah are gone, but also Peter, John, and James. When the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. Only Jesus remained. Yes, Peter, John, and James are there somewhere. But this proves this imagery that Moses and Elijah, representatives of the law and the prophets, indeed the entirety of the scriptures of old, bear witness to Jesus, the one who stands alone among men, having no one like him. There has never been anyone like him, and there never will be anyone like him. Now, 
I want us to consider for just a few minutes how the Lord would persuade you this morning that Christ is worth following. Okay? First, just drawing inferences from the passage. Luke drew attention to the fact that Christ was praying. Why is that? I believe Luke is trying to show us the power of prayer. The power of prayer. Prayer in the presence of God. You cannot overlook this. I'm pretty sure Luke is the only one of the three Gospels that records this, that draws attention to the fact that while Jesus prayed, the transfiguration happened. There is a transformation, a transfiguration or alteration of the humanity of Jesus while he is at prayer. Now think about this with me. If prayer changes he who had no sin, how much more should we be ready to pray and consider that prayer changes us? If prayer changed the one who had no sin, how much more can it change the one who does? This reinforces the idea that prayer does not change God. It changes the one who is praying. If you can grasp this concept, it will transform the way you think about prayer. We think of prayer as primarily... Petition, 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 praise, praise, praise. And that's part of it. But the effects of prayer are transformation. Jesus himself is transfigured while at prayer. Prayer makes you like God because you are dwelling in his presence at full attention. You go up the mountain of God in the presence of God when you go to prayer. This is what happened with the Lord Jesus, who needed no moral change. Imagine the change that could happen to us if we took prayer with this much seriousness and faith. Jesus' humanity is what experiences this transfiguration, not his deity. Deity cannot change. But humanity can. Notice that Jesus is made in appearance like the Ancient of Days from our Daniel reading. Jesus is not the Ancient of Days, properly speaking. He is the Son and the One who receives the kingdom, authority, and dominion. And God says He is the Son, so we should listen to Him. The power of prayer, friends, is the first thing. The first application, again, is the power of prayer. And it's meant to persuade you to serve the Lord wholeheartedly. Knowing that as you pray, you are being transformed more and more to the glorious image of the Son of God whom you love. And for whom you are willing to endure all things. Let's be honest for just a moment before we move on to the second one. We give up on prayer very quickly because we so often are praying for others to change instead of ourselves. We're looking for the change in other people rather than seeing how God is at work to change us. Even the Lord Jesus Christ 
was transformed in his humanity in the presence of God at prayer. Second, the fact that the law and the prophets are about Jesus is meant to be an encouragement. Why do we say that? Because this whole half of the Bible is what all of those that Jesus ministered among would have been familiar with. This whole two-thirds of the Bible, the Old Testament, right? He is worth following because all that stuff you say you follow anyway, you Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees, you people born among the people of Judea, all of those writings that you grew up hearing, learning, and serving the Lord with, all of those things are about This one whose face has been transfigured, whose clothes have been changed white. He is my son, my beloved son, so listen to him. Moses, as I said, represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. This is persuasive because they had lived their whole lives being taught the law and the prophets. And as Jesus says in John's Gospel, those who rejected him were actually rejecting Moses. Because if you believe Moses, if you trust what Moses said, then you would come to the Lord Jesus. Same thing by implication with Elijah. Notice a certain level of biblical understanding is required. The choice of Moses and Elijah are not random. God did not flip a coin, children, and decide who would get to stand on the mountain at this moment. He chose who would paint the best picture by their presence. This was to persuade the disciples as they faced those who claimed to be in the footsteps of Moses and Elijah, those early persecutors of the church who said they followed the law and the prophets, even though they rejected Jesus. Moses and Elijah served as two witnesses to the truthfulness of Jesus' claims. Do you remember how many witnesses it takes to establish a truth? Two, right? Two or three. We have the minimum here. Two, Moses and Elijah, let's say we have a third one from heaven. A perfect witness of who Jesus Christ is. God affirming and practicing, as it were, his own word. The presence, and, or the presence of Moses and Elijah would also persuade them. Because, let me give you a quote here from Leo the Great. In Jesus is fulfilled... Both the promise of the prophets and the purpose of the law. For he both teaches the truth of prophecy by his presence, and Jesus renders the commands possible through grace. That is to say, Jesus, through him, through Jesus, you understand the prophets. And through Jesus, the grace of God comes to you to enable you to keep his commands. Because without Jesus, you cannot understand the prophets. And you cannot keep the commandments. So that was the second. The fact that the law and the prophets are about Jesus. He is worthy of following. Third, they are to be persuaded. Indeed, we are to be persuaded to follow and hear the Lord Jesus because of who he is, because he is the beloved Son of God. Don't underestimate the power of these words. The original audience would have, by and large, believed in a single God as the chief figure of divinity, the God of gods, as it were. But that he has a Son, 
is quite a challenge to them mentally and quite a challenge for them to consider. But this declaration of the God whom they claim to serve, the God whom Moses and Elijah served, this declaration by him commands our ear to the Son, proving that God has a Son. Do you remember when Jesus would say in some places, you believe in God, believe also in me. That foundation is assumed in the transfiguration, that there is a God, that he is living, that he speaks, that he is the one who Moses and Elijah served, and this is the Son of God. The fact that he has a son, the fact that God has a son is Declared, And because of that, you ought to listen to him. The last application. Since Jesus is truly man, and since we are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and he shared in a nature with us, what happens to him in the flesh at the transfiguration is an indicator of what will happen to you as you share in the life of Christ and move to glory. I know that's a long and convoluted statement. It's hard to explain, so I need your brain these last few minutes here. Because Jesus is truly man, what happens to him is a foreshadowing of what will happen to you when you finally get to behold the face of God one day. I think this would have been more obvious to them than it is to us because we think of salvation and its blessings in almost an entirely temporary sense. We think of salvation and its blessings almost entirely about the forgiveness of sins. That's part of it. However, this point about the transfiguration of Christ, pointing to our transfiguration one day, our being made bright and glorified by God who is light, this has been one of the main points argued throughout church history about this passage. Think about it for just a moment. Having the right understanding about salvation, it begins to make sense why Luke put it right after the call to follow Christ and deny yourself even unto death. Because this is where you're headed. This glorified body is where you're headed. And because of that, all things that you face along the way, it doesn't matter. As Paul says in Romans 8, these things are not worthy to be compared to the what that will be revealed in you? Glory that will be revealed in you. Glorification is what happens in the presence of God. Moses experienced it. He was a sinner like you and I. Wasn't he made white and transfigured, trans, uh, <clears throat> and transfigured and transformed in the presence of God? They were in a heavenly location. They were in the presence of God on this mountain. And what happened? The one who went up, all the way up, was transformed. And in this, in the presence of God, Humanity is made like God. The humanity of Jesus 
shone brightly because God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Think about it. Just think about it for just a moment. When you draw near to God, you are either changed or driven away, or we could say killed ultimately. But when you draw near to God, something always happens. What happened to Jesus was not something that happened in his divine nature, but it was his human nature. When his humanity drew near the heavenly presence of God, a transfiguration took place and he foreshadowed glorification. So the point is, if you will walk the line of Christ, this glorification awaits you as well. And again, let me be blunt for a moment. This doesn't really catch your attention, does it? Doesn't really seem that glorious that you're going to be transfigured. The reason is, you and I have not been trained to think of salvation as being made like God. You've primarily been trained to think of salvation as freedom from sin. Full stop. It is freedom from sin. But that is merely one piece of it. Friends, freedom from sin is a means to an end. It is not the end itself. That end is actually what Peter calls sharing in the divine nature. 2 Peter 1, 4. Therefore, the transfiguration is not just about who Jesus is. It's about who you will be. And who you will be is meant to encourage you and assure you as you live a life of denying yourself and living for the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, that is the ultimate hope of the gospel. Being made like God through Jesus by His Spirit. It includes removal of sin, but it also includes transformation of our nature, sharing in the divine life of the triune God, looking like Jesus who took on human flesh for us. Friends, the full Christ is what is offered to you at the Lord's table. By the Spirit, the whole Christ is present to you just as the elements of bread and wine are present. When you take the elements... Know that the Lord is carrying you along to the eternity in which you will ever be made unendingly more and more like Jesus Christ. You will have all eternity to untangle in your mind if you would but heed the call of Christ to deny yourself and take up the cross and follow him. And as you do, heed the words of God. So that you can be made a son of God. For he says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Amen. Let's pray. O oh Lord, you on the holy mount that day revealed to chosen witnesses your well-beloved son. He was wonderfully transfigured. 
His clothes were made white and glistening. Mercifully grant that we, being delivered from this world, being delivered not just from sin, but from this body of death, from this temporary state, that we, by faith, would behold the King, Jesus Christ, in his beauty and be transformed more and more into his likeness. He who with you, O Father, and you, O Holy Spirit, he is the one who lives and reigns. We look on the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the glorified one, awaiting our own glorification. May the mystery and wonder and hope of glorification encourage us unto righteousness. And the Lord's Supper strengthen us unto that end with the prayer that Christ has taught us to pray, saying,